0: Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfee, the editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's April 2023, and on this month's podcast, we're continuing our series of discussions with authors of the 2022 updates of the SHEA, IDSA, and APIC Compendium of Strategies to Prevent Healthcare-Associated Infections in Acute Care Hospitals. Today we will hear from three of the authors of the C. difficile prevention practice recommendations that were published in this month's issue of ITCHY. Joining us for this discussion are Dr. Larry Kosiolik, the lead author of the paper, and an associate professor of pediatrics at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, and the vice president for system preparedness, prevention, and response at the Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago, Dr. Ruth Carico, a consultant in infectious diseases, infection control, education and training, and clinical research, and a professor gratis with the University of Louisville School of Medicine in Louisville, Kentucky. And Dr. Dale Girding, an infectious disease physician at the Edward Hines Junior Veterans Affairs Hospital in Hines, Illinois, and a professor of medicine at Loyola University in Chicago. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks.
0: So Before we get into the details of the updated recommendations, I'd like to ask you to talk to us about where we are currently in terms of the burden of C. difficile disease and its outcomes, and perhaps the continued need for hospitals to focus on preventing transmission
2: of an infection or disease due to this organism. Thanks, David. Recognizing C. diff as an ongoing threat is is really the driving force behind this document and the importance for understanding the prevention measures that we have. It's been now over two decades since we noticed a real dramatic shift in the epidemiology of C. diff in North America with increased severity of disease, increased frequency of disease, increased morbidity of disease related to recurrent infections and expansion of C. diff disease to populations that were previously known to be at relatively low risk, like younger, healthier patients. We've made a lot of strides in C. diff prevention over the last 20 years, so we have have a lot of room for improvement still. There's nearly 500,000 infections in the United States each year. There's tens of thousands of deaths uh, attributed to C. diff, as many as 30,000 deaths in the US each year, with perhaps some improvement over the last few years. A non-trivial proportion of patients require colectomy. We know that patients have longer length of stay and the the cost of care related to C. diff is, is substantial. We've been fortunate to drive down rates of healthcare-associated C. diff infection over the past few years, but we now know that nearly half of cases, if not more than half of cases of C. diff infection occur in those without recent hospital exposures. And so while we make progress in in one arena, we identify uh, opportunities for improvement in others.
0: Great. I think that's really important information to to keep in mind as we start our discussion of the updated prevention recommendations. So can you tell us a little bit about the team that you worked with on this project and the process that you used to develop the updated recommendations?
2: You know, I was fortunate to lead this writing effort with Dr. Duberke and Dr. Gerding, who wrote the 2014 update. We were able to compile a really great, diverse a multifaceted group of subject matter experts to rewrite the updated compendium. We had experts in pediatric clinical care, adult clinical care, public health, safety, implementation science, and clinical research around C. diff infection, who they themselves have made tremendous strides and contributions to the field through their public health work and clinical research.
0: Great. And then maybe you can tell us a little about about how the group processed the more recent data or what you did to update the recommendations?
2: The process was quite complex. It really focused on a, a deep dive into the literature. As many know, there are a tremendous number of papers written about C. diff in the literature. We really focused on papers that looked at various strategies for preventing C. diff infection in acute care facilities. And so, There may be strategies that have shown to reduce the microbial burdens of C. Mm -hmm. C. diff on a surface, for example. We didn't focus on those. We focused on things that were proven to drive down rates of infection. COVID-19 required us uh, to pause as many of the authors were busy uh, responding to the pandemic at their healthcare facilities. Once things became, back to imagine, a manageable level, we had to revisit any literature that was published in that two-year hiatus. But we were able to uh, take a really deep dive and and good look at all of the recent literature to make sure that the recommendations we're providing are are evidence-based and current.
0: Great. Thanks, Larry. And Dale, in the paper, you and your colleagues categorized prevention strategies into three different types of approaches. And I thought that was a really useful mental construct to use when we're thinking about c difficile risk factors and prevention strategies and perhaps something that we can use when we're educating our healthcare personnel or our patients and their family and visitors can you describe what those three categories are for us
1: well there's a couple of principles that are fundamental to prevention of c diff infection and the first of those is based on trying to keep the organism or its spores away from patient and the fundamental Approaches there are environmental disinfection and cleaning, and then good hand hygiene and contact precautions, all designed to try to keep the patient from encountering C. diff spores, which are quite prevalent in the hospital environment. The other principle that probably uh, not everyone thinks about is suppose the C. diff infection organism gets to the patient, how can you reduce the chance that that patient is actually gonna become infected? And that's where antimicrobial stewardship really comes into the picture. So it's fundamental that if you can keep patients from receiving unnecessary antibiotics, you will very likely protect them against uh, any C. diff infection. Since all of us uh, probably encounter C. diff on a more or less daily basis, and don't get sick. And that's because we have not had a compromised microbiota of our own caused by antibiotic use. And so uh, antimicrobial stewardship now has been moved up into the essential category for two reasons. One is uh, protection against and prevention of C. diff infection in the event that you encounter the organism. And the other is to make sure that patients are treated effectively And follow good guidelines. That's not part of our prevention effort, but it's certainly a major benefit to the patients.
0: Thank you. And so as we've seen in the other 2022 updates to the compendium that have been published previously, you provide two different types of recommendations, essential practices, which are those considered to be foundational for C. diff prevention programs in all acute care hospitals, and additional approaches which can be considered for use during outbreaks or in locations or populations within the hospital where C. diff is not controlled through the use of those essential practices. And your new paper here provides updates to recommendations that, as you mentioned, Larry, were published in 2014. And those, in fact, were updates to the original compendium that was published back in 2008. And I noticed that many of the recommendations have actually been fairly consistent over the years, but there have been some changes over time. So what are some of the most notable or important changes that we'll find in this update to the C. diff prevention recommendations?
3: You know, Dio outlined the essential practices of antimicrobial stewardship and diagnostic stewardship and then the adequacy of of room cleaning. And I think one of the approaches that to me stands out the most and really is of tremendous benefit with this newest addition, is that we're providing additional guidance on the how behind the implementation of these new recommendations, either the essential practices or really even drilling down more into what do we need and how do we put these into practice. So for example, the notion of assessing adequacy of room cleaning, this has long been recognized as important with C. difficile, but now we're saying, you know, if we're gonna make this happen, where the team that we have, those that are involved in the implementation of these recommendations is not only going to need to be broader but more engaged in the process. So taking each one of those, even though there were no additional approaches beyond in the outlining of the essential practices, but no additional approaches, the fact that there was additional guidance on how to implement, I think makes this of incredible importance and of incredible benefit to those that are actually going to use this and uh, put these prevention strategies into
0: place. I think that really is one of the big benefits of this particular set of prevention recommendations is the inclusion of of really helpful implementation guidance for facilities that are trying to put that recommendation into place. It's easy to write a policy, but it's harder to actually get these things done on a day-to-day basis. So I think that's really a a key
2: component of, of all of these compendium documents. I think one important aspect that I want to highlight that's added to this document compared to the 2014 one is the importance of a formal program for antimicrobial stewardship. We've known for a very long time that encouraging appropriate antimicrobial use is is essential for patient safety, in particular reducing the risk of C diff infection, but this document really highlights that a formal program is needed to achieve optimal success and there's been many many studies in the last 10 years that have shown when resources are put into antimicrobial stewardship programs, both at the hospital level and at the national level, and especially when focusing on high-risk antibiotics, be it fluoroquinolones or cephalosporins, you can achieve dramatic reductions in C. diff infection rates in your patients.
3: This is of tremendous importance, especially when we think that, you know, majority of healthcare is provided in smaller hospitals. It's not in necessarily in major medical centers where, A lot of the expertise in antimicrobial stewardship is present, that we will have antimicrobial, we will have pharmacists that are specifically trained to do this, but that is not the usual across all hospitals. So by having this compendium outlined that this is a critical element and actually going through what needs to occur, how do you need to measure it, what do you need to do in terms of follow-up this is really beginning to give more meat to what it needs to have a stewardship program. And I could not agree more that I think this is one of, a critical element that this compendium will will greatly support.
0: One of the other kind of new essential recommendations in this version is the recommendation to implement diagnostic stewardship practices to ensure appropriate use and interpretation of C. difficile testing. So I'm going to start with a basic question. What is diagnostic stewardship for people who might not be familiar with that terminology?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. And uh, this is a relatively new concept designed to try to Streamline the process of diagnosing C. diff infection. I have to say, this is probably my view anyway, one of the most controversial areas that we have right now. We'd like to see clinically appropriate testing of patients who have significant diarrhea, and at the same time, interpretation of laboratory tests or what's called lab ID for C. diff. And we still do not know exactly how to put that together appropriately to identify the patients who have C. diff infection from those who might be asymptomatic carriers. And so there are algorithms being used now. One that's become very popular is to do nucleic acid amplification testing or PCR and follow that for positives with a toxin test, usually enzyme immunoassay. That test will pick out about half of the nat-positive patients. And that last test would then be reported to NHSN as C. diff rates, if it is healthcare associated. The big question is what happens to the patients who are nat-positive and toxin-negative? And there's where we really don't have a good grasp of what's going on. But a recent study by CDC has suggested that over 70% of those nat-positive toxic negative patients are being treated for C. diff infection. However, they are going unreported. And to the extent that this is happening, uh, we really don't know whether that is impacting C. diff rates or not. I think we should be aware and listeners should be aware that NHSN is going to change its definition to include treatment of C. diff in the future probably this year. Those cases that undergo treatment were are NAT-positive, toxin-negative, likely then be included as C. diff infection. But this whole area of diagnostic stewardship is exceedingly important, and there are multiple, multiple ways of going about trying to achieve a diagnosis with a combination of clinical symptoms and laboratory testing. I don't think we really know the best way to do it even now.
0: I think you provided some really interesting data in the paper that I wasn't as familiar with all of it, but about 8% of patients are colonized with C. diff at the time of admission, and perhaps up to 25% of people may be colonized at some point during their hospitalization, which I think a lot of people don't realize. And so, really being thoughtful about who you're testing with some of these nucleic acid amplification tests or PCRs, because those tests, as you pointed out earlier, will pick up colonization just as well as it will pick up infection. So, really having a better sense of the clinical scenario under which the testing was done and and should it be done so that we can really help kind of figure out whether this is representing colonization or active infection. It, It does seem to be quite important. Exactly. And I will point out that the February 2023 episode of the podcast uh, was focused on diagnostic stewardship, and one of the guests was the author of a paper that described a C. diff diagnostic stewardship intervention at a pediatric hospital. So I think that episode might be another resource for people who are interested in hearing more about that particular topic in this type of intervention. Another new essential practice that I was hoping to have you talk about in a little bit more detail was the one uh, to assess the adequacy of room cleaning. This had previously been classified as an additional approach back in 2014, and it's now moved to an essential practice. And so, Ruth, maybe I'll ask you to talk to us a little bit about the rationale for moving this into the essential practices category.
3: So, I'd love to. And I think that, you know, we've long recognized the importance of environmental infection control But the challenge has always been, you know, how do we do this? How do we evaluate? How do we effectively improve practice? And I think largely there was thought that, you know, without pointing this out, without clearly having some statements, um, specifically that a recommendation then is to assess the adequacy of room cleaning. And that means if you're going to do that, then you've got to engage the people that are actually performing that work. So it really expands then the importance of addressing CDF beyond the clinician, beyond the stewardship and the microbiologic elements that have, that we have always found as incredibly important. But we're also then beginning to bring in the rest of the team, the rest of the hospital team, who are the people that need to work on training the environmental services personnel and addressing a turnover. And then, what are the processes for reviewing their use of cleaning and and disinfection techniques, looking at the products that are used. So this pulls in then specifically the personnel within hospitals that are responsible for the ordering of supplies and equipment. In addition, there's a specific statement about the reusable medical equipment, items that move room to room. Again, we long recognize the importance of cleaning and disinfection of those particular items But we also know that there are tremendous process failures and that if we don't actually evaluate how well this is actually being done or in some cases how poorly it is being done, we're not gonna be able to adequately address um, improvement strategies. So this requires then that facilities be not only assessing training programs, but be assessing how well they are evaluating the performance and the practices of personnel and then looking at the internal logistics I and mean, how do we manage equipment that is being used? How well do we manage the cleaning and disinfection of perhaps items that we have not given a lot of credence to in the past or that we have felt simply because it is a, a non critical item that we don't have to be as attentive to cleaning and disinfection? So the depth uh, that is added now in this iteration of this uh, guidance is will again be of tremendous help, both to the infection prevention community, but also environmental services, the individuals that are doing the uh, value analysis or product standards within these facilities and ordering equipment and ordering the products that are being used for disinfection. It really uh, gives up uh, a to the needs to have an expanded team. So we've talked in
0: pretty good detail about three of the essential practices that your group has provided, but there are seven other essential practices or things that you think all hospitals should be doing. Can you give us an overview of those other essential practices that we
2: should all be thinking about in our facilities? Thanks for that question. I think this is vitally important because doing all these essential practices are what needs to be done before starting to consider some of these additional practices. And so we talked about antimicrobial stewardship and diagnostic stewardship. A lot of the essential practices are things that we've done for decades, and so there shouldn't be a ton of surprises here. But we, again, highlight the importance of of contact precautions for patients who have been diagnosed with C. diff infection. Alongside that, it's preferred that patients with C. diff infection are housed in a single patient room because of the ability for C. difficile spores to contaminate the environment. We understand that there's a lot of healthcare facilities that cannot comply with single patient rooms based on their resources, but cohorting of infected patients may assist with that. Cleaning uh, and disinfection, as Ruth just mentioned, is vital. Not only the environment, the patient's room, but also any equipment that are used and shared between patients, and that can include things like blood pressure cuffs or, or stethoscopes or Ultrasound machines, et cetera. And so, having processes in place to ensure the equipment and their room and environment are not only cleaned, but we're ensuring that they're cleaned adequately remains essential. Infection preventionists in hospitals can be key for implementing these essential strategies for patients who test positive for C. diff infection. And so, having a system that can alert both the clinical personnel that are responsible for the care of a patient and the infection preventionists to a new case of C. diff infection from the laboratory will allow um, those teams to assemble and communicate and to implement these strategies in a very time-effective manner. We often say in quality that we can't improve what we can't measure. And so for that reason, it's important for us to perform uh, routine surveillance uh, for C. diff infection to report these data to our stakeholders and for us to respond to these data when there's concerning trends. Those data will also give us information about whether we need to start considering some of the additional strategies that we outline. Finally, education is key. The education uh, needs to be uh, multifaceted as well. Not only healthcare personnel, but our environmental services, teammates who are vital for prevention of C. Diff infection in hospitals and also hospital administration as well. So they can understand burden and the investment that's required for those resources, families, And patients also should be educated about C. diff infection to ensure that they are a well-informed stakeholder in that process as well. And finally, process measures. You know, there's all of these things that we know work for C. diff prevention, including hand hygiene and implementation of contact precautions. We need to be doing observations of those and ensuring that our hospital team members are remaining compliant with those evidence-based recommendations. Your
3: description and your summary was great, and the Again, the reminder that this, the is a complicated and a complex problem, and that you know making sure that we are pulling in all of the voices that need to be pulled in, both to assess practice and then come up with strategies for how we are we're going to improve, will make this something that we can accomplish and that we something that we can uh, walk away with success. And then, of course,
0: beyond those essential or foundational practices that are recommended for all hospitals, you also described five additional approaches that can be used, as we mentioned before, in facilities where C. diff is not adequately controlled after implementation of those essential practices. So what strategies are included among those additional approaches that hospitals might consider in in those situations?
1: I think the major focus would be on changing hand hygiene, for example, and recommending hand washing, since we know that alcohol is ineffective in removing spores of C. difficile from hands. However, there's a drawback to that, of course, in, in that it's much more difficult to perform good hand hygiene with soap and water than it is with uh, alcohol containing rub. So, but that would be one of the strategies that would recommend. The second one is environmental cleaning using sporicidal agents. Many would be surprised that that isn't in the essential list because my hospital and many of them that I'm familiar with routinely do that as part of uh, environmental hygiene in the C. diff uh, patients. So that's an additional recommendation. Other recommendation possibilities prolonging the duration of isolation. Again, a controversial measure because of the availability of rooms and putting patients into uh, contact isolation for long periods of time is, is hard on the patient, it's hard on the hospital administration, uh, but sometimes that may be the only uh, strategy that is going to be affected. And these additional measures uh, all have Data supporting them. On the other hand, uh, it's not clear that they should rise to the level of an essential mention in most of these cases. But I noticed that many of the hospitals already are invoking some of these additional measures routinely.
2: And I think that final point is a point that I think a lot of hospital stakeholders may ask their infection prevention teammates after reviewing, you know, we're already doing a lot of these additional approaches. Does that mean we should stop doing them? I was asked that and, and my response was no. I mean, if we have a good operational approach for being able to do this effectively, we should continue to do it. However, if there's other essential practices that we're not doing because of time or resources and funneling resources from some additional approaches to those essential strategies could be done, that's something that that hospitals may need to consider. But we're not advocating for stopping any of these additional approaches if they're already working well for you.
0: I think that's an important point. And you also have a section in your paper on unresolved issues. And those you describe as strategies for which there are few to no data supporting their effectiveness or for which there are some supportive data, but there are concerns about potential patient adverse events or cost or logistical or operational challenges to successfully implementing them. But you do know that despite these issues, these are strategies that you could consider if the incidence of C. difficile remains elevated after the essential practices and perhaps even the additional strategies have been implemented. And you and your colleagues identified eight of these unresolved issues. So lots of unresolved things related to C. diff prevention. And there were four that really caught my attention, at least, because they're strategies that I've certainly heard lots of facilities talking about some or doing some of these things. But I thought perhaps that many of our listeners would be interested in hearing about these, uh, at least these four unresolved issues. So the first one I wanted to ask you about is, identification of asymptomatic C. difficile carriers through the use of nucleic acid amplification tests or PCR tests using rectal or perirectal swabs, and then placing those patients who test positive for C. difficile on contact precautions. So what data do we have to either support or refute this strategy, and what are some of the potential pros and cons of doing this?
1: There are a number of studies that have uh, invoked isolation of uh, carriers, basically identification and isolation, and they've been done in a variety of slightly different ways and slightly different populations have been identified for doing the culturing. I should point out, unlike staph aureus nasal culturing, it's a little bit more sensitive doing rectal swab cultures on patients. Than it is to do nasal swabs. I think that's understandable. And some patients actually do the swabs themselves. They were called perirectals. But the data for uh, uh, utilization of this kind of strategy is variable. There, are, I think I reviewed three or four different papers, all with slightly different in terms of the population enrolled, and also different in the extent to which isolation was invoked in these patients. So, some of them were in contact precautions light, if we can use that term. And, and we're actually uh, being cared for, not in a private room, but in a multi room and with a curtain separating them from other patients. And, uh, so, this gets around the major drawback to this policy, which is that you identify a very large number of patients that 8% that you mentioned on admission is a, Producible it's somewhere between 6 and 8% would then automatically go into isolation category. And the question is, do you have enough rooms to accommodate those patients? And do you really want to put asymptomatic patients into that category and isolate them? When we looked at all of the pros and cons of doing this, we just felt that it wasn't quite enough data to make this a recommendation at this time. But it's certainly something to think about. We know that patients in hospital increasingly acquire colonization with C. Yes. So that twenty percent number represents those patients who've been in the hospital three or four weeks. There aren't many of those around anymore. But fortunately, we did the original studies. There were a lot of patients who were staying in the hospital. The Protective factor for these asymptomatic patients is that they're asymptomatic, that they're unlikely to transmit as readily C. diff as someone who is having this diarrhea. So at this point in time, that remains one of our key unresolved issues. Larry, you have any additional comments?
2: Yeah, I would add that the pediatricians on the panel, like myself, were particularly concerned about including this as a strategy because of the very high rates of C. diff colonization in infants and young children, uh, which is a large part of our patient population. This strategy could become resolved if more evidence becomes available over time. But even if that happens, I think we'll continue to need to evaluate the pediatric population uh, differently for this particular strategy.
0: One of the other perhaps unintended consequences that could come from this approach is more people getting treated with antibiotics for a disease that they don't have, just with a clinician sees a positive C. diff test result, they could accidentally get treated, or not even accidentally, but inappropriately get treated just based on that test result, which kind of gets back to your whole diagnostic stewardship recommendation from the beginning. So it does sound like there are a lot of things that need to get worked out before we're ready to go prime time with this one more, more broadly. The second unresolved issue is implementation of touchless disinfection technologies, such as UV light
2: or vaporized hydrogen peroxide. This was another unresolved issue that we had a lot of discussion on. I think with particularly the challenges uh, related to strong environmental disinfection and control of C. diff through environmental cleaning, like Ruth highlighted, there's this hunger for for using new technologies to improve environmental cleaning. There are a ton of data about these touchless disinfection systems about reducing the burden of C. diff on surfaces, but we weren't using that as a benchmark for determining what we should recommend as a central or additional strategy. The best study on UV disinfection was a cluster randomized multi-center crossover study that was published in, in two forms, a primary analysis and a secondary analysis. The primary analysis looked at the efficacy of reducing C. diff infection in individuals who occupy a room of someone who had C. diff infection before them. In that primary analysis, there did not seem to be a benefit. However, when they looked at a secondary analysis about hospital-wide reductions, they showed that UBC in general might be associated with the reduction of hospital-wide C. diff infection irrespective of whether or not the patient occupies a room immediately after someone was discharged who had C. diff infection. Additionally, there's several other small studies with variable benefit from UV disinfection for reducing C. diff. However, it was very clear that in those that have implemented this, there is a substantial cost of obtaining the equipment. There is a substantial operational burden of needing time between discharge and the next admission to uh, be able to deploy and, and utilize those touchless disinfection systems. And, and certainly in during high hospital volume periods, it can be difficult to do that. And these machines, they're they're not robots that run themselves. They need humans to be able to make sure that they're placed in the right position in the room. And to um, run them safely. And that's a, an additional operational challenge, particularly in the setting of hospital staffing shortages. And so for all of those reasons, without clear evidence of effectiveness in a primary analysis, this measure remains unresolved.
0: And then the last two things I specifically wanted to ask you about there were two unresolved issues related to primary prophylaxis of C. difficile. The first one being related to the use of probiotics as primary prophylaxis. What are the data for or against that approach?
1: The data are mixed, to say the least. Generally, um, uh, multi variable analyses show that it is effective, but Those studies contain a large number of local studies in which the rate of C. diff. seal in the control population is exceedingly high. And so some of the um, analyses have removed those unusually high rates, full C. diff. rates. And even then, it's not clear that this is an effective strategy. And it's definitely not effective if your C. diff. rates are down in the three per 10,000 the level and again a more, more recent trial has just been published uh, that again showed that it was ineffective and uh, of course the question always is if you do a study with a probiotic and you don't get a good result did you use the right probiotic and there are so many of them available that I think it's very difficult to invoke this as a you know, measure to prevent CDF without interdating. So I think this one remains unresolved.
0: And I think you also point out that there are potential risks to this approach, at least for certain patient populations, potentially those that are immune compromised, having an increased risk of active infection due to the probiotic organism. So something else that people at least need to keep in mind if they're considering that type of approach. Absolutely. And then I guess the last one is similar but different, and that's primary prophylaxis with anti-C. difficile
2: antibiotics. Yes, this is another one that had a lot of discussion. If you've attended SHEA or, or ID Week or any similar academic conferences, you've likely seen abstracts of, of small case series of patients, some of whom have potentially benefited from getting antimicrobial prophylaxis like vancomycin or fidaxomicin. To prevent C. diff infection after hospitalization, there's additionally been systematic reviews and meta analyses on this topic that are largely conflicted. The panel was pleased to see a relatively well done study that had recently been published. It was small, only 100 patients, 50 who got vincomycin and 50 who got placebo. It was blinded, it was randomized, and it showed that in those 50 adults who had multiple risk factors, for C. diff infection at the time of admission that giving vancomycin as primary prevention was effective. Additionally, there's a small trial of adults undergoing stem cell transplant who've gotten fidexomycin prophylaxis and have had reduced risk of uh, C. diff associated diarrhea after their stem cell transplant. There is increasing evidence that this ultimately may become a strategy for certain adults, but I think we're very early in the science here again, there's harm. We know vancomycin is relatively broad spectrum when it comes to the gut. That can lead to other complications related to microbiome depletion and antimicrobial resistance. We know that the cost of fidexomycin, for example, is quite a bit. And so we need more evidence. We need cost-effective measurements and estimates. and, And we also need to very clearly identify which patients with risk factors will rise to the threshold of benefiting from this.
0: So, in addition to the specific practice recommendations and these unresolved issues, all of the compendium documents include a section on implementation strategies to assist facilities with putting these recommendations into place, as Ruth alluded to earlier. So, Ruth, are there any particular implementation strategies that you or your team thought would be particularly helpful for facilities or for those of us who are trying to enhance our C. difficile prevention efforts?
3: I think, Larry, you mentioned earlier that the importance of measurement. So whatever you are doing, whichever of these activities you are doing or intend to do, you need to have a strategy for determining how you will measure success. And that always starts off with what is current practice? And then how close are we to ideal practice? How do we get there? What is it that we need to be evaluating? What are some sustainable or feasible ways of measuring performance so that we can determine our success. And if we are not successful, then what are the barriers that we have had to success? Has it been practice? Has it been the ability to gather the data? Has it been the ability to appropriately assess or evaluate the data? So it gives you then the, you know, it puts the the importance um, on really establishing a very clear, very firm roadmap for evaluating performance so that you have been the objective ways of assessment for determining whether or not you are making a difference in your actions.
0: Great. Well, I think this really has been a fantastic discussion. And unfortunately, we didn't have time to talk about all of the helpful information in the paper. So I do encourage everyone to read the full manuscript. I'm sure you'll get a lot more out of it than what we were able to discuss today. So at the end of each podcast, we ask each of our participants to give listeners an action item or a practical tip that they can take away from the podcast and put into practice in their own facilities immediately, or if not immediately, at least in the very near future. So with that in mind, what tip or piece of advice would you give to someone who's trying to advance the C. difficile prevention work that's currently going on within their facility? And maybe I'll ask Ruth to kick us off.
3: Sure, and I think, you know, that with this complicated, very complex issue, I think the first step is knowing, you know, where are you? What are you currently doing in terms of intervention? And then identifying those areas, where are your gaps? And then coming up with a very firm strategy for beginning to make some progress. Now, you're not going to make incredible progress overnight, but without having a very firm plan where you are pulling in the appropriate people to help you with that process, it's going to be very difficult. So assess uh, where you are, and then identify your gaps, and then being able to move forward.
0: But well, you do
1: well. First of all, uh, congratulations to everyone because C diff rates are declining in the uh, healthcare associated category, although rising in the community, as Larry said. But we're doing a better job preventing infection in the healthcare facilities. So congratulations, and if I had one thing to watch out for. It's be aware of your diagnostic stewardship efforts and be aware that NHSN is likely to change how they are identifying healthcare associated infections in the future. So when that comes out and probably will not be enforceable year or so, but get used to including treated patients in your CTIF calculations in the future.
2: Thanks, and finally, Larry. Thanks. I'm going to piggyback off Dale's comment about mentioning the challenges with community-associated C. diff, and just want to really highlight that this document points out how important the actual programmatic elements of antimicrobial stewardship are essential. And we know that there's a lot of listeners who are relentless antibiotic stewards, but just don't have the resources or the bandwidth, or the personnel to be able to do this effectively. And I hope that this document can be used to advocate to hospital stakeholders that this is very important to invest in because antimicrobial stewardship programs will not only be effective for driving down healthcare-associated C. diff infection, but those principles, if applied broadly, particularly in ambulatory settings, will also reduce the risk of community-onset C. diff infection as well.
0: I think those were great tips, something we can all take away from this discussion today. I want to thank all three of you uh, for joining us today, and I also want to thank your co-authors as well as you for the time and expertise that you devoted to updating these recommendations to help us improve our C. difficile work within our facilities. I also want to thank Lindsay McMurray, our producer and the managing editor of ITCHY. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the ITCHY podcast.